Open the eyes of my heart. You may be seated. I want to take this opportunity to welcome each of you here at High Point Church this morning. What a privilege it is to have you in worship service with us and in the presence of the Lord. Apparently there were some folks that got snowed in this morning. Uh, it just looks to me like it could snow out there about any minute, so that's why well, I thought maybe some folks got snowed in. I, no, we realize that this being a holiday weekend and Christmas just passing, that some folks are out of town. And, but we are delighted for each one of you that are here today. We can make a difference in 2010. I come to this pulpit this morning very reluctant to do what I'm going to do. I have wrestled with the Lord all week. I've had one long sleepless night. He's won the battle. He pinned me down, so I'm going to do it. And hope you will indulge me for a few moments this morning. It's just 20 minutes to 12. It's going to snow out there this afternoon, so... No need to get in a hurry to go home. Somewhere. This being the last Sunday service for High Point Church family in this decade, and standing on the threshold of and preparing to step into the next, I come to this sacred pulpit, pulpit this morning with a message that the Lord Jesus has placed on my heart that's somewhat different than what you have received in recent weeks. And I, I don't plan on preaching in the sense, as Brother Dave was talking about earlier this morning, and yelling. What I have to say today is very critical, very important. Young folks, if you're in this building, the age of 40 and under, you better pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. I know you have heard it said by myself as well as other ministers that no local, nor state, nor federal, or world leader is in place of authority without God's hand and consent. That's a fact. There's no official leader rises to any place. I don't care if it's a city council without God knowing it's happening. However, with that in mind, I fear the church worldwide, as a result of the many years of plenty and blessing, has become somewhat complacent in its need and desire to seek after God and pray for the condition of this country and the world. Now, my fear is this, that we, for the most part, and I speak as the church overall, worldwide, as born-again Christians have adapted the attitude, well, Jesus is coming back soon, so it really doesn't matter. However, the Word of God says absolutely differently. It does matter, and it matters a lot. Think about this before I preach this morning, just to kind of give you a 
picture of where we are as a nation. The United States is in serious decline as never before, not only morally, but financially. Not only is the Christian community under a blatant assault and attack, but we are already in debt, clear up to our eyeballs as a nation. In an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, a fellow by the name of Lawrence Kaddish reported, as of September 30th, 2009, the national debt was almost 12 trillion T, trillion dollars. And the interest, just to keep the interest paid up on that $12 trillion debt, is $383 billion a year. As I heard one senator say this last week, they're spending like drunken sailors up there. Now, I don't know what that means. I have no idea because I've never been a sailor. and So I don't know what that's about. And this is according to the Treasury Department's Bureau of Public Debt. The Congressional Budget Office on October the 7th estimated the 2009 budget deficit to be almost $1.4 trillion. That means for the point of clarification that the United States government is spending $1.4 trillion above and beyond what it takes in on an annual basis. How long do you think you'd stay in business doing things that way? That's about 10% of our gross domestic product. The Office of Management and Budget projects deficits of about $9 trillion over the next 10 years. Now, if that occurs, the national debt will be almost $21 trillion by the year 2019. Them some sobering numbers. However, the actual amount could be much higher. It always is when the federal government's involved. It's never what they say it is. Now, the inspired, living, breathing word of eternal God tells us the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Now, here's the thing. I said that to say this. China, Japan, and many other nations to whom we are massively in debt could literally pull the plug and bring our dollar and our entire economy down almost overnight. All they have to do is put down the gauntlet and say, we're not loaning you any more money. We're not buying any more of your certificates. Now, with all that being said, would you please stand? If you think you can, we're going to read our text here in just a moment. But before I read, please understand what I'm about to preach is a very positive message. I know you're thinking, oh boy. I don't want you to think as a result of what I've just shared with you that this is going to be some negative message and you're going to go home all deflated and all down in the dumps and with a sour look on your face. Because we can make a difference. I'm going to prove it to you in the Word of God. 
I'm throwing down the gauntlet and the challenge on this last day of 2009, or the last Sunday we'll be in service here at High Point Church in 2009, to challenge you to make a difference in 2010. It may mean our survival as a nation. Amen? So today, the title, please, I hope you're recording this this morning. And uh, if you're not, please do so. I want to preach a little bit about helping our nation survive. You see, one individual can make a difference in 2010. So with that said, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I read in your hearing this morning. Everybody okay? Say amen. You're not so depressed you want to leave now. Because you look out there and see how gloomy and cloudy it is, it's just going to depress you worse. So you might as well stay here. Paul writes, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And can you say amen? Let's bow our heads together for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, I so thank you today for this privilege and opportunity you've granted me once again to stand here behind this sacred desk and before this, your great and glorious people, to declare the word for the hour today. I pray, Lord, that you will help me to speak as you have given this to me. Open my heart and my mind today, O God, as your instrument and your vessel. And, Lord, I pray that you'll help each of us to receive your word today as we challenge, Lord, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to make a profound and dramatic difference in 2010. And we'll give you the praise and thanks for it. It is in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Look at your neighbors, shake their hands, smile at them real big, and tell them I'm going to help our nation survive. And if you're one of those folks that has the mindset that it really doesn't matter because Jesus is going to return, I hope you repent at this altar before you leave today. Amen? Hallelujah. As a January wind chilled chilled the air in 1961, how many of you around were in 1961? I'll confess I was 11 years old. I remember this. John F. Kennedy accepted the office of President of the United States of America and fired up our patriotic spirit with these immortal words, and I quote, And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. End of quote. How many here remember hearing those words? So with that being said, let me ask you this. What can we do for our country? Now, obviously, we can pay our taxes. That's always a big plus. We can vote. Certainly, I encourage you to do that. You need to do your civic duties. We need to obey the laws. Amen? And we also need to defend the nation against invaders. Now, these are all worthwhile contributions, and we certainly don't want to minimize their impact and lessen them in any way. However, there must be something more, something deeper, and something more meaningful that we can do for the cause of our nation. 
Amen? I'm not going to ask you to write checks out to help the debt today. That's not where we're going with this. Because they just squander it and waste it anyway. Whew, I said it. Today our nation, as it was established by our forefathers, is fighting for its survival. However, threatening us are not the usual social diseases that torment underdeveloped countries, such as poor sanitation or poverty or starvation, etc. Ours is a struggle for the soul. With a cancerous sin spreading insidiously through our nation's vital organs. Every day another family collapses from compromised morality. Every day another business dies from the lack of ethics. Every day another young person falls from weakened values. So I ask again, what can we do for our country? How can we help our nation survive in these unprecedented dangerous times that we live? I submit to you that these questions are too personal to be relegated to a president to answer. He may claim to have all the answers, but he does not. The House of Representatives and Senate may claim to have the answers, but there's only one answer that will change America, and that is Almighty God. There's not any group in government that can change it. We must turn our attention to Almighty God for His wise counsel and direction. Amen. Whew. Hallelujah. Nearly 3,000 years ago, Long before John F. Kennedy celebrated his ascent to power, there was another young leader that was reveling in his landmark achievement. And I refer to none other than Solomon, the son of King David. And he had just completed the temple that his father had only dreamed about and so desperately wanted to build. Oh, David wanted to build the temple. It's so bad. After years of work, Solomon's expert craftsmanship had tapped, craftsmen had tapped the last stone into place and they had hung the last golden door and a beehive of workers had polished the lamps and the snuffers and the bowls and the fire pans to a gleaming perfection. It was brilliant. God's permanent house was ready for habitation. Now while the king and the people were making sacrifices to welcome God's glory into this new edifice and this new glorious temple. An army of priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. My, I can just mentally envision this scene as it was taking place. And while the king and the people were making sacrifices to welcome God's glory, they were marching in with the Ark of the Covenant. Solomon then... He knelt down on the platform, raised his hands to heaven facing the congregation, and he began to pray. Dedicating the temple and the nation to the Lord's service. And when he had finished, I'm not going to go through that long prayer because he prayed for a long time. Them folks probably thought he was never going to get up off his knees. He got lost in the Holy Spirit and he was praying. You can read it sometime during the sixth chapter of the book of Second Chronicles. But when he was finished praying, 
The Bible said that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord of the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good for his mercy endures forever. What a moment. What a pinnacle. For days the worshiping and the sacrificing continued, reaching a peak in a day of solemn assembly after which the people joyfully returned home. No doubt King Solomon's heart pounded with pride as he went to bed that evening, lying there basking in the afterglow of God's glory, thinking about the events of the past few days. What an accomplishment. He had successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his own palace. Painstakingly, he had designed the temple to meet God's holy requirements. And I must admit, at a great expense, he had led his people in a magnificent worship service. There's just nothing like a magnificent worship service. There's just nothing that will send you home feeling real good about everything like a magnificent worship service. And my friend, they had one that day. This has been the pinnacle event of Solomon's life. And now it was over as he lay there thinking and pondering the events that had transpired the previous days. The moment was his to savor as he basked in the afterglow and replayed the magnificent scene over and over and over and over in his mind. Then without warning, while the king rested in the darkness of his bedroom, a visitor slipped into the room. I've had such visitors as that slip into my room on occasion with no one else around. As Solomon laid there basking in the glory of all that had transpired, the Lord appeared to Solomon that night. It was just God and Solomon all alone together, and God had him a captive audience. together in the stillness of that evening. Now, during this intimate encounter, the Lord chose three things, three subjects, to address and counsel King Solomon about. One was the temple, the other was God's people, and the third was Solomon, the leader, the king himself. Now, filling the room with his glory and divine presence, the Lord first encouraged Solomon with these words. He said this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12. Solomon, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now it's important to understand, pleasing the Lord had been Solomon's sole intention from the moment he launched this massive project. 
And no doubt he must have been grateful to receive this affirmation from the Lord God himself. Now perhaps to remind Solomon of its purpose, God called the temple a house of sacrifice. This was a place of meeting, if you were, where the contrite souls could find mercy, where God in His holiness could embrace His people. And that's what the church must and has to be today. Amen. The doors of this house must always be open and the sacrifices always burning. The sacrifices back in those days of animals, of praise, and of prayer. You see, God had claimed this building as His and where He would reside. And no self-avowed Messiah must depose Him. The nation must remain faithful to Him and to Him alone, no matter what the future may hold. My friends, we must remain faithful to Almighty God and to Him and Him alone, regardless of what happens in the future to this nation and the world. Whew. Hallelujah. No doubt in the days of head, in speaking in relationship to the nation of Israel, the spirit of celebration would most likely fade. You know how it is. Time passes. How many people in, our, in, our, in, this, in this country today have already let the memories of 9-11 slip so far? They're so far removed. It's verily a vague memory. And so it is as it was. God knew that as the celebration would fade off, that the people would be tempted to start drifting away from the Lord. Oh, yes. And if that should happen, God might just have to test them and pull them and tug them back into His gracious care. As when He said to them, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to bow the land, or send pestilence among my people. God has a way to bring us to repentance. He has a way to bring nations to repentance. Oh, yes, He does. You see, drought, famine, and plague, how could a nation survive under those conditions? And as we endure the consequences of our own sin, we must ask the same question. And to that I would add, God's answer to Solomon blows across cultures, it blows across time to give us a refreshing wind of hope. Here's what God told Solomon. Here's what I'm telling you, friend, that we can make a difference in 2010. For if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Amen. Amen. I like that passage. In fact, I've got that highlighted so much in my Bible, it's hard to see it. Now, from this passage, I see at least four things that God expects from you and I, from His people. First of all, we need to humble ourselves. That's the attitude of a servant. Second, we need to pray. The spirit of dependence. We need to understand right now, our dependency is upon God and God alone. If we're going, 
If this nation is going to survive, it's going to be by the hand of Almighty God. Amen? First, we must seek His face, a willingness to wait. And fourth, turn from our wicked ways, a response of obedience, if you will. Amen? Amen. You see, in Israel's past, nor ours, heritage would be enough to help the people endure God's discipline. Amen? I know there's some of us here that have a lot of heritage. But let me tell you, that will not be enough to help us endure God's discipline. They would have to return to Him with humble and dependent hearts, willing to wait for His deliverance. Amen? And that's not all. They must also show their change in attitude through their actions. In sailing terms, and I'm not a sailor, but this is what I'm told, in sailing terms, they must come about, change their heading from pursuing sin to pursuing righteousness. Amen. And I believe the church, with the power and presence of Almighty God, has enough influence in the throne room to change the direction this country is headed. Amen. And in return, God promised that their prayers would get his attention. He said, I will hear from heaven. And that he would forgive their sin as he witnessed their humble spirit. You see, he also promised to heal the nation as he saw the people changing the direction of their lives. You see, disobedience to God's word and law is an internal disease that requires divine healing. This nation that we live in is requiring some divine healing. Oh, it's gotten way out of hand. All other remedies merely treat the symptoms. And although God is a righteous judge who in His sovereignty disciplines His people, He is also a loving physician. Oh yes, He eagerly waits for His people to come to Him. Regardless of what generation it may be, where we may come from, the Bible says in, in, in this conversation that he had with Solomon, that God had with Solomon, he said, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Hallelujah! He said, I'm always going to be looking. I'm always going to be listening. I'm always going to be attentive. So wherever you get to, wherever you go, however far away. I said I wasn't going to yell, didn't I? However far away you get, he said, I will be watching for the moment when you call out to me. Now, it's important to understand. We talk about this temple a lot and the temple that Solomon built and but the temple was not just an inspiring cathedral for choirs and priests. It was a place where people could come to experience God personally. The church must be a place where people can come and experience God personally. We don't come together here just to entertain and just to get together for a social event, but we come here hoping that people will come and experience God personally while they're here. 
Amen. Centuries later, although Solomon's building was gone and Jesus nevertheless respected the temple for its original purpose. In fact, seeing the religious charlatans exploiting the pilgrims who were seeking atonement with their Jesus, as recorded in Matthew chapter 21, went into the temple of God and he drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple. Amen. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Get out of here. But you have made it a den of thieves. And after he done that, you know what happened? The Bible said that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You see, healing, mercy, and prayer, that's what the temple was designed for. And I would add to that, that is what the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ are designed for. Amen? Now God turns his attention to Solomon. Look at him right square face to face. Don't you know he had Solomon's undivided attention? The Lord offered Solomon two futures, each showing how his spiritual walk could potentially influence the nation. Let me tell you, we can influence the nation. It's all based on our spiritual walk. Oh, but pastor, you don't understand. One person, you know, this, this, no, let me tell you something. Prayer changes things. Need I remind you, I've used this so much recently, need I remind you how prayer and repentance and preaching the word in Nineveh changed God's mind on his destroying them? In one hand, the Lord extended a gracious promise. In the other hand, he issued to Solomon a very serious warning. Now, I've got to address both of them. I know we don't like the warning part too much, but we, we've got to look at both of them to really get a full appreciation of where we're going here. I'll share with you first the positive side so the, the, so the other side don't hurt quite so bad. Here's what he said. As for you, if you walk before me, as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. Here's what you can have, Solomon, if you go down this road that I have structured. I wonder today how much we are missing out on because we are not going down the road that God and His Holy Word has structured for the church to go down. I'm just, I'm just posing a question, folks. Now the other side of that picture. But he said, but look, Solomon, if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all of this calamity on them. Here's your choices, Solomon. Here's the choices that you and the nation of Israel have, and you as their leader and their king. 
You're the one that has to set the standard. So which hand would Solomon choose? One contained images of his sons and his grandsons sitting on his throne in a never-ending line of godly kings and a reign of peace. But as he peered into the other hand, darkness shrouded his view. He saw himself uprooted from his homeland, his golden temple crumbling and ridiculed, and his people suffering God's stern reproach. Which would be his destiny? Which one would he choose? It depended on one thing, just as it depends on one thing for you and I, his desire to walk with God. Folks, it's not hard. It just, it's just what it depends on, our desire to walk with God. Let me take a few moments and talk about spiritual survival then and now. Amen. Look at someone close by you and tell them we can make a difference. Now tell them I can make a difference. Although our nation differs from Solomon's in many ways, the United States is not Israel. We live under grace and not the law. God's Spirit dwells within us rather than in a temple. But the principles are much the same. Everybody say that. The principles are much the same. Like Israel, we have enjoyed God's blessings during our more than 200 years of existence. Let me remind you why and how this nation was established on the biblical premise of freedom to worship Almighty God and not have a state declare what our religion would be. And not have a government tell us who we could call God and who we could serve and where we could go to church. Just threw that in for good measure. That's not in my notes. Perhaps the reason relates in parts to our original pattern and purpose for government having been based on biblical standards. Do you realize that when our forefathers established the Constitution of the United States and set these things in orders, they did so on a biblical foundation? On a Judeo-Christian biblical foundation was the principles that God set forth, and that's why he blessed this land so abundantly. In God we trust. However, it is clear that we as a nation have drifted far, far, far from our former commitment to be one nation under God. So I ask as a nation, could we be in danger of forfeiting God's blessings? Oh, we're on the pre precipice. If we're not there, we're real close. Again, as a nation, if God paid us a night visit, what counsel would he offer? No doubt in my mind it would be similar to the survival instructions he gave to Solomon. Humble yourselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from wickedness. I, I don't recognize this nation as opposed to what it was when I heard the statement made by John Fitzgerald Kennedy in 1961. I don't recognize society as I saw it then. 
I don't recognize this nation as I saw it 20 years ago. I don't recognize it as I saw it a year ago. And if it don't change its course by this time next year, you won't even know it's the United States of America. I know that was a bold statement, but it's fact. You see, there is healing in that simple message. Healing for individuals, for families, for businesses, for nations. However, the job can't be done by committees. Everybody smile. It cannot be done by committees. It cannot be done in the boardrooms. Amen? It won't be accomplished in the panel rooms on Capitol Hill. Those guys are so far out of it, they don't know where they're at. It, it, it can't be accomplished in judges' chambers or in voting booths. So please don't misunderstand. You vote. And it cannot, be, it cannot be resolved in city council meetings or even in church gatherings. It must be done by you and I individually. By my people who are called by my name. It's when we go into our prayer closet and we intercede with passion and conviction in prayer, God turn this nation around like it once used to be. I'm not done, folks. Stay with me. Just a few more minutes. Don't leave me yet. I challenge you, we can make a difference in 2010. Amen. According to Peter Marshall, did two individuals, one by the name of Peter Marshall and the other David Manuel, all authors of The Light and the Glory, this approach puts the responsibility directly upon each of us who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Much as we might like to blame the immorality of others for the precipitous rate of decline, but the responsibility in all factuality is ours, and it always has been. Oh, Pastor, how dare you? Hear me out. When Solomon Stoddard, a gentleman by the name of Solomon Stoddard, once challenged a gentleman by the name of Increase Mother on this very point, pointing out that the covenanted Christians in the 17th century New England were only a fraction of the population, Mother retorted that nonetheless that fraction was sufficient to stand for the entire land and redeem the whole. When God told Moses, get out of my way. I'm taking these people apart. I've had it. I've had it up to here with their rebellion, with, with their turning away from... I, I, I've had it. Just get out of my way, Moses. I will make you a great nation, but as for them, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses... By the grace of God, threw himself between God and them and stopped the fury of God on them. He said, God, if you do that, you're going to look bad. 
you're going to look like you brought them out here just to destroy them. It's not going to look good for you. It's not going to look good for me. In fact, if you're going to do that, kill me too. I, that was a bold statement in the present. I'm telling you, I don't know that I'd have the nerve to do that. Because I'm just thinking, he just might say, all right, pal, if that's what you want, here we go. Let me move on. You see, that fraction was sufficient to stand for the entire land and redeem the whole. You see, my friends, we can make a difference. And praying humbly for our country and for ourselves is a good place to start. You see, here's one thing. We, we need to get this etched in our mind. You and Almighty God make a majority. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Would you please stand? Let's all stand together. I'm going to close. I'm going to share with you and pray this prayer that was offered in part on July 4th of 1982 from the pulpit of a church in Southern California. And the prayer goes something like this. Oh, our God, we are in desperate times. Integrity is a forgotten word in business. Even our government has pockets of pollution that we continue to discover. You are the only source of true purity. You are the only hope, our future. Forgive us for our smug complacency. For once we find ourselves well fed, who really could care less about the hungry? And once we are comfortably in from the rain, who could care about the shelter of another? Begin by humbling us, our Father, giving us hearts of compassion, giving us a heart for those who do not have sufficient resources to survive. Open our ears to the cry of the hurting. May physicians practice a compassionate medical practice. May attorneys see and feel the hurt and the need of their clients. May teachers teach for the sheer joy of stretching minds and developing a curious heart for the world that you have given us to enjoy. And may preachers preach the truth. Father, purify us as a people. Do a deep soul-searching work within our hearts and then within our homes. And then cause the salt and light to infect and impact others with truth. Not so we will feel better, but so we will survive. Precious Savior, as we share this prayer that was offered many years ago, we look into the recent years and oh, how things have even grown so much tragically worse. I pray today that you will help us, humble us, 
Help us to know that through your power, through your presence, and through your spirit, we can make a difference in the direction this nation travels. Lord, if we have found ourselves stuck in the mode of complacency, I pray that you'll forgive us. Help us to overcome. Help us to shrug off the complacency and the indifference and await to the realization that you and you alone are our only hope. Lord, today as I have given to this congregation and myself as well, the words that you have instilled in my heart, I pray that they will not lie dormant somewhere in the deep recesses of our mind and soul. But Lord, as I have thrown out the challenge to this congregation, I pray that those who may hear this through the various other forms of media may also accept the challenge and recognize that we can make a difference by humbling ourselves and through prayer to Almighty God for His abundant mercy and glory. As we worship you here today, I pray that you will just prick our hearts. Each and every one of us in this sanctuary today, I pray that you will prick our hearts, that we will fall prostrate before you and repent. We will seek you with every fiber of our being. For Lord Jesus, as this nation catapults down a road of disaster, only the church of the living God can make a difference. I ask in Jesus' holy name. Let us worship right now. <laughs>